Hi, this is Ridley Scott here. We're about to go through Martian, which is my latest film, which we've just completed. The film with Matt Damon and uh, very nice cast, Jessica Chastain, Chiwetel, Kate Mara, Jeff Daniels. I didn't develop the script. The script was developed by Fox. A very good writer, Drew, was an excellent writer who did a great adaptation a faithful adaptation of the book. And in the book, and therefore in the screenplay, the reveal of going, when you see the story, the beginning of the book doesn't really work in the film the way it is in the book. So the middle of the film is where we suddenly rejoin the crew after about page 56, and it was a bit late. I always felt why not treat it in a linear fashion see what happens, see him get left behind, go to the earth and say, Mark Watney is dead, and then resume, come back, and then the film evolves. And that's the way we did it. But we were all over the place with those you know, variations. Uh, faithful to the book, but in fact, I think it got in the way. So I think what it is now, I think, is clearer and better. Hi, I'm Andy Weir. Uh, and I'm Drew Goddard. Andy, tell him what you did. Oh, yeah, right. I wrote the book that this uh, movie is based on. It's important. It's yes. important. It matters. Uh, and I was the screenwriter and executive producer. I was just thinking we could start talking about how much I love the book and how my job was to protect the book at all costs. And the very first thing we see in the movie was not in the book. So I'm depressed about that. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, wait, what? I guess, right, the scene that we start with. So here we are in Wadi Rum which is in Jordan. Wadi Rum, for those who really were paying attention to David Lean movies, was in Lawrence of Arabia. And I'll never forget those shots from Lawrence. And consequently, I've been back there three times for plates for Prometheus One, for Exodus. But now we went back there to actually film, uh, rather than just plates for Martian. So we'd done all our studio shooting in Budapest, in rather magnificent new stages. So half the stuff you see right here, right now, is a mix of the stage work in relation to very good green screen and Wadi Rum. So you get to a point now where you can't actually tell the difference. That's how much I believe in green screen and visual effects providing you with the right people. Happy to turn the radios off from here, Commander. We built the habit. This is, for instance, a studio shot. That was a studio shot where he's kneeling. That's in Budapest. Well, they're doing their daily work, I mean, which is fundamentally science, geology, biology, in a funny kind of way, not dissimilar to archaeologists, where I guess that they'd block out the ground as if they were on an archaeological site and where each portion of ground that each one tackles is examined carefully and scientifically. This is funny. The reason that we moved this scene outside rather than in the breakfast table, as you had it, mm -hmm. Ridley said, I've already shot this scene. It's an alien. We have a crew sitting around having breakfast in the morning. I don't want to have another scene of a crew having breakfast. Can you please come up with something else? So that's why we did this. Right. This was like the last thing you wrote. It was. It was, it was like the last, kind of the last change. Because it was very much what was in the book. And then Ridley said, I don't want to do another breakfast scene, hmm. which is his right as the yes. director. It is not a democracy. <laughs> it is not, nor should it be. <laughs> nor should it be. 
What's the abort force? Oh, the abort force. So in real life, a Martian sandstorm doesn't have the power to do any damage to anything. The atmosphere of Mars is so thin that even with 150 kilometer an hour winds, it, it couldn't damage anything. So that was like a concession I made to reality. It was a man versus nature story, and I wanted nature to get the first punch in. So this is one of the few areas where we just kind of like give the finger to real world physics. And everyone calls me out on it. And I, I often get a lot of emails from people who think that like I just didn't know. So what's interesting is, is while they were working on this, uh, Ridley sent that question. He's like, uh, according to the NASA guys, you, this wouldn't happen. And I'm like, yep, it wouldn't. <laughs> but <laughs> so that's why they had it change it to instead of like, oh, kilometers per hour, they had us change it to abort force. Right. Like the force of the wind is like, you know, 8,000 newtons. And that, that would be dangerous, but no Martian sandstorm would have that kind of force. And it really is the biggest buy of the movie. Yeah. And the, and the truth is, we wouldn't have a movie if we didn't have a storm. Right. I mean, I could have come up with some other method of stranding him there, but it wouldn't have been as cool. <laughs> and cool always wins. Cool wins. One of the um, sort of behind-the-scenes champions of this film and getting it made was uh, Jim Cameron, who because this is a Fox movie and he has a, he's very friendly with the Fox people, they sent him the script just to get his opinion on whether or not they should make the movie. And he was over the moon and very enthusiastic. But his one note was, this storm could never happen. <laughs> and it was funny that he picked up on it right away. Yep. Making the storm, I think I'm becoming an expert in making storms in studios. We did pretty well, actually, and... Uh, I had a pretty good rehearsal on Prometheus where I had to do a storm, but I think this is even more successful. It's assisted by some layers of digital particles by uh, the effects company, MPC, who are great. I, I love to work with MPC. I work with them all the time. By doing that, we thickened everything. We could place the focus and have particles literally moving sharply in foreground and so it becomes very effective on the big screen. And, of course, you connect that with the sound. It's fantastic. As usual, all the technology looks like it works, but in fact it doesn't. But good actors look like they can make it work. And uh, that's partly my job to make sure that all that kind of stuff falls into place, looking like the real thing. I think NASA were very interested in um, seeing finally what I would do with the suits and the technology that are used, because we're talking near future here, maybe 15 years' time, where there's a possibility that they will consider trying to put a crew on Mars, but that's a hell of an order book. It's a giant challenge, but that's why they're saying 20 years. I talked to an astronaut who said, that's more or less it, that they'll start to think quite seriously about it at 15. They're already thinking seriously about it. They're already interviewing people that might go to Mars and might want to stay there. So that's a kind of, a kind of rather scary proposition. Some people will go there, live there, not come back. Uh, I'll bet you get a lot of, you know, volunteers. Not me, I'm a city boy. When you get tubes like that, I thought all the particles whooshing up the tube might be useful 
The tube is long to climb up, it's about eight, 60 feet, so you've got to be fit. So by the time the storm drops away out of its punch, you have fine black dust floating up the tube, which I love that. Just add that on the, on the spot. We did it literally, and then Richard, MPC, added more. Tell us how you came up with this idea. Well, I was uh, sitting around thinking about how a manned mission to Mars could work, and <laughs> I came up with what is the Ares mission, and then I started coming up with all the things that could go wrong, trying to figure out how to make sure that the mission plan wouldn't kill people, and I realized that all these things that could go wrong might make for a good story, so I created the unfortunate Mark Watney. At the time, though, you had a day job. Yeah, I was a computer programmer. This was your first book? It was the first book I've ever had published. My first two weren't, weren't that great. Right. That's, that's how this tends to work. Yes. So you're working a computer programming job, and you're writing this, what, at night? I'm very, I'm very uh, yeah. interested in writer's process. Yes. So you go to work all day, and you come home every and then, night? And I'd work on this at night, and I was posting as a serial to my website. It helps to not have a social life of any kind. <laughs> that is how we become writers, that, isn't That's it? how yes. that happens. <laughs> I really couldn't have shot in... Budapest had I not found this very modern building there. They called the Whale, and we just took it over and we put everything into this, like it's the main new office of the modern NASA, including what you'll see fairly shortly is the kind of magnificent control room. Okay, so how long did it take you to write the book? It took me about three years. Uh, on an, I mean, I'd post a chapter maybe every two months or so, and then sometimes I'd go months without touching it. Okay. What really helped was uh, encouraging feedback from my regular readers. I had a small mailing list of people. They would give me feedback and a lot of encouragement, and that just helped motivate me. Because that's the hardest part about writing is writing. It's easy to come up with ideas. It's hard to write them down. <laughs> I, it's funny. I say it all the time. One of the things that happens in Hollywood is you hear a lot of, we've got a great idea, but the script's not very good. And I always <laughs> say, the script is what you pay for. Yeah. Like, execution is what you're paying for. Everyone has good ideas. Yeah. It's not special. I believe I read the book, I want to say March of 2013. I talked to you right around the time Fox came for the uh, film rights. Right, and you were still negotiating the book rights at the time? Yeah, the, I book, want to say. the book deal and the movie deal came together four days apart. So that was pretty surprising. Because I remember when I first read it, I just bought it for a dollar on Amazon because <laughs> you were still just sort of essentially giving it away. Here we discover that, in fact, Mark Watney is alive. And, of course, it's not literally the right time because when you actually think about it, you say, well, wait a minute, I mean, he's been lying in the sand all that time. No, it's a pre-lap to the announcement that Jeff Daniels just did. He probably lasted post-storm, maybe if he's lucky in that suit, two hours, storm dies, daylight, he wakes up, and they assume that he's dead. And of course, he's still tethered to the spike that went into his stomach, pierced his suit, didn't kill him because the blood congealed in, in so doing, saved his wife and saved the, the pressure inside the suit so he could function. Now he's, the wire has to cut the wire. Astronauts, I discovered, have two things which are terribly important. A handy toolkit at all times with everything in it and a roll of gaffer tape. Or we, in the Amer film industry, we call it gaffer tape. In America, they call it duct tape. Duct tape is very strong canvas kind of tape which will stick to anything under any conditions, including wet on wet. And this stuff will save your goddamn life, will seal your aircraft, will actually seal your helmet if you crack it from the outside world. 
And we, in fact, have a sequence where we see him save himself by having always having his trusty duct tape. I'm getting to a point now that uh, in Alien, I always had CO2 in the door, so when they opened up the door and closed the door, there was a blast of CO2, which, of course, is, to me, the cleanser. If you bring any biology in, it's dead. And so I stuck that on the doorway just for fun, really. No one spotted that yet. When you get a wonderful truss on like that, you can't. It, to unclip that would take a lot longer. So I had him just bash things and clips automatically undone. That's the beauty of filmmaking. All right, so March of 2013, I get a phone call from Aditya Sood, who is a producer on the movie, and he says, look, I'm going to send you something. It's special. I think you're really going to like it. And I say, okay, what's it about? And he said, it's about a guy stuck by himself on Mars. And I said, why haven't I heard of this? He's like, well, because it's an ebook." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that sounds just silly enough to excite me. <laughs> so send it over. And uh, he sent it over. And I remember I read the very first sentence. And the very first sentence <laughs> is, I'm pretty much fucked. I remember laughing out loud right when I read that. And now that I look back and I've had time to think about the book and think about all the things I love about the book, everything that I love is pretty much in those first four words. <laughs> it's not, I'm fucked. It's, I'm pretty much fucked. So there's, <laughs> the humor is there. The, you know, humor in the face of existential sadness is there. <laughs> and the optimism by it's having- not completely. He's not completely, <laughs> but you know, it's also realistically, I'm probably fucked. <laughs> and so I remember thinking, okay, this is good right away. I read the whole book. Like I would imagine most people read it in one sitting because it really moves, Andy. I mean, it just really- <laughs> Well, thanks. It just rockets. And I'm always looking to say no to things because I... <laughs> cause Boy, I, just nothing makes you happier. It really does. It really no. feels good to say no uh, in Hollywood, for sure. And people get very confused. And it's fun to watch them be confused. But I read it, and then I went to bed, and then I woke up the next day and was still thinking about it, and I read it again. <laughs> and then uh, and then I read it again. I remember I read it three times before I even called Aditya back because I wanted to make sure that, I, you know, that it was as special as I thought it was because I've been fooled before. You know, sometimes you'll <laughs> like something, and then the next day you're like, yeah, but I don't want to devote two years of my life to this. And so you, you want to be sure. And it was my wife. I was talking to my wife, and I said, I, this book is really special. And she said, well, what, what do you love about it? And I said, you know, I, I sort of told her what it was about. And it was my wife that said, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's about your hometown. And I didn't put that together because I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, <laughs> surrounded by scientists. And one of the many things I loved about the book is that you really captured scientists the way that, to my ear, scientists <laughs> sounded that I'd never seen before. And it's this sort of combination of optimism and intelligence and humor that I find very common in the scientific world. <laughs> well, thanks. Everyone always laughs at this expletive. I hadn't intended that, but everyone laughs. And Fuck. really, either I think it's a form of release that the tension lets them off the hook. And so they realize, oh, great, I can laugh a little bit in this movie, which you can, because he's the kind of unshakable, you know, astronaut, which I think is part of the quality of these people and why they're chosen that they are there to contend and deal with anything that comes at them. Like a pilot, test pilot, he's got to just stay cool. And then we changed it to Saul 18 is the day that he got uh, stranded. In the book, it's Saul 6, and I love the reason why. Yeah, it was a Ridley thing. Well, and it's actually like once, once you see the scene, it does make sense. 
there's a scene later on where he's yeah. where he's stirring the crap from the crew, adding water to turn it into fertilizer. And Ridley wanted there to be a good sized bucket of crap that he's stirring to be kind of a gross scene. Yep. And it's funny and it works really well. And he's like, well, six days of crap production from six people would not generate enough. That is why many people have asked me the question, why is it Saul 18 instead of Saul 6 in the book? And the answer is, so there could be more crap in that bucket. (laughs) All the Sauls just have 12 added to them from the book. Yeah. And then we had to sort of figure out the ramifications of the food. Right. We just said that they sent a larger margin of error. Yes, that's right. That was the simple fix. It's fun. As a screenwriter, it's fun (laughs) to get notes from your director that are essentially add more feces to the movie. challenge in the script, I think people were afraid of it, is that there's a lot of voiceover to tell the story, mainly because he's on his own. So I've got to have a guy either talking to himself or voiceover. Both are dangerous. So you always got the practical side of things. And I figured this habitat, which is, you know, a place livable with six people, or the rover, which is livable with four people, and that's about it, really. That's all he's got. And so I always thought that um, they would have in here, a bit like a black box in an aircraft, if they all died, they'd want to know why the moment they, it went and why it happened. So to me, the GoPros became the black box of the thing. So I figured, you know, how many are there? 30, 20, 25? So wherever he is, he can talk to a camera, so he can do asides to a camera. So in effect, the GoPro becomes his buddy. So the cadence, it changes when you're talking to something or someone. So you've got reasons for the tonality to be voice talking to another person and joking another person, straight voiceover and straight reporting to camera. So when he sits in front of his desk, he's doing ship's log, Everywhere else, GoPro, when he's ruminating, then that's voiceover. So there were three opportunities for different intonation, and I think that helped a lot. Consequently, a lot of the film is quite amusing. I think sometimes downright funny, particularly given his perilous situation. People don't always read scripts with a view to later saying, oh my God, that's funny, I didn't realize it was going to be so funny. It's in the text. If you know what you're looking for, it's in the text of the book. Having now met Andy, the writer who's a real pistol, I mean, he's funny and, you know, charming and witty. And Matt's perfect, because Matt, in a funny kind of way, is the ultimate cool, calm, understated kind of guy, which works perfectly for this. You know, not that he needs us to praise him, but <laughs> we need to talk about how good Matt Damon oh is in this God, movie. Oh, my God, he's just incredible. Because I, I don't know who else could have done this, quite honestly. It's such a complicated role. The character in the book, it, it's all there. But finding a person that can do this is difficult because you need intelligence and you need, you know, someone that can do the humor and like, you need someone that you can watch be alone on a planet. It gets difficult. The, the list gets small quickly. <laughs> yeah. 
I like Commander Lewis. She's, uh, in the grand scheme of things, she's kind of a secondary character, right? Obviously, Watney's the main character, but then you get to, like, who is the deuteragonist, right? Who's the second most important character? And it's probably Vincent. And so, but Lewis is very but she's, important. She, yeah. If he's two, she's 2A, right. I would argue. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the things I loved about the book is that you essentially have the most important emotional relationship between two people is between Mark and Lewis, mm -hmm. and it's not romantic. No romance. Like, which I love. Ever. It should not even occur to the reader. She's his boss. She's his commander. She's like, if anything, she's like almost in a maternal role. Yep. Here's the big discovery. Thinks about that, gives that a long look, hmm, and realizes that actually he has something. If he remembers, Nasser had given them as a thoughtful present for Thanksgiving, turkey and spuds. Now, not many people know, but a potato actually is a seed. If you cut it in half and plant it and fertilize it in 40 days, you will have a potato plant with maybe six to eight potatoes on it. So you've already done compound interest on half a spot. If you do that over the area of this floor, you've got a farm that's going to keep you alive. And you can keep doing that. So potatoes and rice are the two biggest staples in the world. Now I think rice has become even a bigger staple. No, potatoes are now the biggest staple in the world, even in Middle East and Far East. Spud is the magic vegetable. It's not that good for you, but we all love it, particularly fried. So he's now got to live in spuds for the rest of his stay there, where he's going to become an expert on how you cook potatoes. Here we are. Goes outside, and there are capsules lying in what they call the organic waste, human waste. Each visit has been sealed in a plastic container with your date and your name on it so that later, if NASA wanted to, they can take a sample of these things over a period. And it's a bit like taking samples of your hair. Your hair is a perfect graph of what you've been taking, what you've been eating, what drugs you've been taking. It's in there like a graph in one hair, you know that? So over a year, if you grew your hair for a year, you could, that single strand of hair is an, an indication of what you've been eating, what you've been taking. Same with poo. Poo will be later, this is freeze-dried, later that poo will be examined to see what's happening to your intestines, to your, with no gravity, to your, your calcium. Where are your bones going soft, etc. So that would all be studied afterwards. That's why they kept it, thank God. Great thing about the way we put this together is you still don't know quite what he's going to do. He's about to reveal what he's going to do, and I think people, when they watch the film, I think sometimes they think, oh no, how long are we going to spend inside? Oh, we're not. Oh no, what's he going to do now? And I think it's full of surprises. That's why when you get to this and he says, fuck you, Mars. Oh, fuck you, Mars. It brings the house down. They love that cool. And now he's plowing the field. So the music, of course, should echo 
that sentiment and that enormous thing that he's doing, he's growing food for himself using the droppings of his fellow crewmates. And once you mix it up, the audience get used to that. I think it's embarrassingly, embarrassing as hell, but funny. Isn't it funny how people are actually embarrassed about their own droppings, right? And now you get a dollop of poo, and then half a spud, cover it. 38 days later, you're gonna have something, right? Isn't, isn't God wonderful? And there you have the garden. So the trick is how you shoot these. You've got to know what you're doing when you're shooting. I've prepped all this in my head before. And you know, I say, right, I don't want to see him, you know, doing, and I'll do three and then cut out and it's evolved. To show the watering, how that works, I just jump up wide and do a stop motion shot, see how the water's getting darker and darker. But people can tie themselves in knots doing that. We did this in 74 days, the whole thing. I like this because it's always like trying to challenge the audience and they're going to go, oh no, he's not going to find Christ and talk to God, is he? It's not that at all. It evolves quite wonderfully in the text to having to go through his co-pilot's things to find a very private thing, which is a cross, which he wasn't allowed to have on board because it's wood. You can't have wood on, on a spacecraft because wood will burn. You can't have stuff burn. So, Thank God for the pilot from Michael Pena. The cross is carved up and used for kindling. When the people realize what he's doing, they love it. All that science and chemistry works, by the way. Those little pellets that it gets from the engine, you mix them, you burn them, you heat them, eventually creates humidity. The tent becomes the chimney to make the atmosphere humid, which will eventually carry water efficiently onto all those walls. It was you who came up with the idea of using GoPros uh, for him to be expositioning to. And I thought that was brilliant because just like in the, in the book, it's just his log. I mean, it's presumably a typed log. He's typing into it. But right. now we have this like completely video-based log and he's talking to the GoPros to document things, which means now we get to see him doing things and explaining stuff rather than being this kind of omniscient voiceover exactly and you want it to feel the, the other challenge is it's it's past tense when you're entering it into a log right and we wanted to feel i, I wanted to feel the immediacy of this it is now yeah yeah we, we definitely took it seriously where we didn't ever want to have narration for the sake of narration it all wanted to play like he was recording it as a log and if sometime it bled over <laughs> yeah that was just part of the log and it sort of functions like narration but we never wanted to feel like we're just explaining things to the audience and then this thing, he's smoking like Wiley Cody. <laughs> I just love it. It gets me every time. It was really a great pleasure working with Matt, who's a team player. And often he would just hang around on the set to see what was going on. I love that when they do that. They don't leave. He's just curious to see me line stuff up. I think he'll definitely start directing as well soon. I think that's definitely in his plan. Interesting side note, this is actually how the Jet Propulsion Lab was founded. Five guys at Caltech were trying to make... Oh yeah, when we showed this to the JPL guys. So the first time I saw it was in a, a viewing room at Fox and uh, they brought, they showed it to a bunch of like top JPL guys and they were really happy about that scene where they're, where they're just like, where he's just like, oh, by the way, this is how JPL was founded. Yeah, it, uh, and that came from me just going to JPL and talking to people. And it was one of those, 
bits of information that I found fascinating. And I also sort of, it felt the spirit of the movie to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you try to figure something out, you blow yourself up. <laughs> yeah, that, that is <laughs> you very You try to JPL. figure it out. You keep, you know, you plow forward, you know? <laughs> I like that, that uh, seeing the water inundate yeah. the soil. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm not sure what he was doing here. It was never really clear to me. No. Just repairs, general repairs to the helmet, I guess. What's he doing to that helmet? God only knows. Does it look good? Yeah. You gotta make stuff up as you go. I mean, I always board everything to the ultimate detail, but by boarding it makes me really think it through. And you get really good ideas when you just sit down by yourself, uninterrupted, and quietly work through it. If you can board it, makes it even better. Love, this is a very nice moment, actually. Nice, really nice score here by Harry. Well, hello there, hello there. Right there's gonna save his ass. Hey there. Life on Mars. When it, look, there was there were many fights, Andy, that you were not <laughs> privy to, uh-huh. and they were all about protecting the book. One of them was, we need to cut to Earth much sooner. That happened right. throughout in the script process and then in the editorial process. And, you know, I felt very strongly that we need to stay with Mark as long as possible the way you do it in the book because it really helps sell the isolation. On the script, it's about page 20, which is late <laughs> to get to, to get to these people. So mm-hmm. it was a challenge to sort of get through Congress, but we did. <laughs> That's pretty good. This was another scene in the book that I loved that it was really important to keep because I love that they're talking about the real bureaucratic side of science, yep. which is it, it's not about this idealism. The idealism comes through, but yet it's about people worrying about budgets and appearances. Tutor, excellent, effortless, funny, funny guy. Nice. I worked there once before in American Gangster, where you're playing the younger brother, the one who wore the flashy suits. And he just got it. He's, he's Nigeria, but kind of also very British. I think he's probably English public school, good school. And I think I'm sure, probably almost certainly something like the RADA, Royal Academy. And he's prolific. He's always working. That, of course, outside the window is NASA with all those rockets. That's the garden of rockets in NASA. Every twin rocket they made this stand up in this area just like a park of rockets you know still people don't use multi-camera i'm shocked i still find every time i do a film most of the actors come in and are surprised that we're literally multi-camera all of this four cameras on this right there we so we do it in i do it in 15 minutes as opposed to half a day so what happens but you got to know where you're putting your camera and you know you're going to cut it. You're going to use it. Because a lot of people just bung a camera and get a shot and you never use it. It's grabbed, you know? We wait a year, nobody gives a shit. This girl's very interesting. She's playing Mindy Mackenzie Davis, who's actually right now got quite a successful TV show going. I hadn't seen it, I just met her in a casting set. I thought she was fabulous. So this is the one end of the room in the building in Budapest. And we 
went in there and fitted the screen. All those screens are modules, which all clip together, modulate light sources, which actually are, they kind of use in big rock concerts and things like that. So they can put any image on there that they want because they're all interconnected and all married together. So it was very successful. And we're literally for it. There's no, there's no mat here. We, what you see is what we had in the room. We just photographed it. And sometimes we had to diminish it, uh, degrade it like this. Somebody's pointed out to me that Mindy Park is the only character in the entire book that undergoes any growth. Hmm. Like, all the other characters, all the main characters, are, their personalities are the same at the end as they are at the beginning. Yes. But Mindy starts off, like, really shy and intimidated by all these powerful NASA people she's interacting with. But by the end of the book, she's just being a smart ass to him and stuff like that. <laughs> Her Joseph Campbell hero's journey is that she becomes a smart ass? Yeah, a little bit. Well, and then, and I liked it at the end, we see that she's the guidance flight controller, which is pretty big, uh, pretty big promotion for her. Christian Wig, delightful to work with, really smashing actress and one of the funniest people I've ever come across. Harrison Stitcher most of the time. Uh, it was a very good team. I can't think of anyone in the universe throughout all time more suited to play Annie Montrose than Kristen Wig. And she plays it pretty tame from what I would have uh, thought. I mean, because I expected her to really go off. Kristen's a phenomenal actress, and I think that she got that she got the spirit of this movie. Yeah. And I think she was, frankly, excited to play something other than, other than the comic relief. Silly. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, there's some amazing outtakes. Turns out he's alive, and we left him on Mars. Our bad. Sincerely, NASA. I mean, do you realize the shitstorm that is about to hit us? Yeah, that line also usually gets a pretty good laugh. Like, our bad, sincerely, NASA. Boy, the audience is like Christmas. In all, it's a very nice balanced cast of really three universes. There's NASA, JPL, four universes, JPL, the spaceship, and Mars. So I think one's the nice thing about arguing, saying we've tested the highest I've ever tested in my entire career. On five screens, we were always in the 90s, which is within 87% definitely recommend, which is, you can't go higher than that. That's fantastic. And I think part of it is that you've got every possible thing here in here you could possibly want. Humor, drama, visual, spectacular, and some great actors. There's a running gag about Lewis's, Captain Lewis's cheesy disco collection uh, that she takes with her wherever she goes. And all he's left with to, to entertain him is this disco collection and some video tapes of some old American 70s TV shows. And one of them is Happy Days that actually plays up kind of big time in the story. No GPS on Mars, even though there's 11 satellites at the moment circling Mars, all giving off different information, there's no, there would be no GPS, so you're into dead reckoning. And when you're on the ground, you're into dead reckoning. It's almost like back to the old days of sailing ships and maps. 
kilometers before the battery has to be recharged. Okay, so you write this. At what point do you quit your job? <laughs> After the book had made the bestseller list, okay. basically. So I never took a financial risk. It wasn't until I was certain that the royalties could support me that I quit my day job. Yeah, so. I remember you were still working your day job while we were working on this. Yeah, no, it was funny. <laughs> the first time we spoke, I was in a conference yes. room at my day job. Just I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. Science the shit out of this. I think it should be pointed out. Like, everybody tells me, like, oh, Andy, that's just the greatest line. You're just such a genius for this. Like, Drew wrote that line. It that, that line is not in the book. And it's a great line. And I hate the fact that I didn't think of it. And so... Uh, so, yeah, that's how I feel about <laughs> the other 99% of the lines in the movie. So, <laughs> if I got one through. It's a great line. Went down. Man. Okay, so success. Uh, Wadi Rum. People were a bit nervous at the time because ISIS were peaking at that particular moment politically. And of course, we're 800 miles from the Syrian border. And I reminded them that actually in Budapest, we were 300 kilometers from the Russians. And they said, oh my God, oh really? I said, yeah. I said, yeah, 800 miles, come on, you're fine. And so we went there, there was absolutely no problem whatsoever. And we were very well looked after. And I'd already done a extensive recce with Chopper. So I'd finally have to pre-choose before I start shooting the actual rocks I was gonna stick the habitat in front of. You've gotta make that decision. So I made that decision and then it was then captured photographically in every way possible by MPC on different sizes and lenses. Probably with all the lenses I'm liable to use, wide to tight in 360 pans, so they always have the information. And so once I invested in that, I knew I was fine. In good hands. This is all real, there's nothing, nothing added in here at all, except our silly flag. It's all real. I think Lawrence shot here with his dunes. And that is, by the way, pretty much exactly what the RTG looks like that's on the back of Curiosity. Yep. This is one of the funniest reactions in the film because he's all he's got to take him to entertain him, keep him happy, is Captain Lewis's disco music. So, this is what he said this is the least disco music you can find from Captain Lewis's collection. And uh, they love it when he starts to do his little thing. He, he actually quite enjoys it. <laughs> so, the disco's in the book. The disco's in the It's one of the things thing. I loved immediately. <laughs> how, how did that come about? So much of the book takes place on Mars. I mean, you spend so long on Mars, and he's dealing, he's got all this high technology and stuff around him. I didn't want the uh, reader to lose track of the fact that this is supposed to be happening kind of close to now. Yes. I, it's a slight future. It takes place in 2035. There aren't it's, flying cars. Yeah, right. Yeah. He mentions, like, Wikipedia, and he uses Sharpie pens, and there's a bunch of products that he uses that we use every day. And so it's just I wanted to keep 
Keep reminding the audience. I want to hang that rocket on the roof right behind him, but they said, please don't do that, because every time we, it's about 200 shots here, so we've got to put the rocket in 200 times, do you really need it? Because that's actually when you walk in with him at the beginning, you look up, that's the same roof. So I, I had mercy and said, no, okay. You asked me how you did, and I'm giving you my answer. My answer is, eh. Look, I'm going to make people forget there's a very strong possibility that Mark Watney could die, because that is what you were paying me for. And unfortunately, I need this job, because currently I am paying alimony to two deadbeat ex-husbands, because somehow gender equality has bitten me square in the ass. Hard to believe. I left them. And don't say bring him home alive. It reminds the world he might die. Don't say bring him home alive. Janty does a great costume job on everybody. Everything. The space suit, of course, is wonderful. But then the dressing of these all these characters is great. Tuatel is a bit of a, not dandy, just extremely well-dressed. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Mark drove two hours straight away from the Hab. Did a short EVA. Interesting to note, I was told that at NASA, because they are involved with rocketry, which involves human beings and human control, pilots, there's a dress code, suits and ties. And JPL, that only makes robotics, the kind of slightly cooler, you know, nerd, and flip-flops and long hair, right? And so, and, but when a pro there's a problem, they get together. Very much, very supportive, very good agency. It's all about the safety of the pilots and everything else. It'll take nine months. It'll take six months to build I worked with Benny Wong three times, actually. And he was not a lot to do, not a lot to say as a co-pilot in Prometheus 1. And then I gave him a nice part as a financial genius in the counselor where he went to meet Cameron at the end and fundamentally advise her how to take her money out, where to put it. And unfortunately, at the end, we didn't need, the scenes are great, but we didn't need him. And so this is the third time we got lucky. And I, I like him so much, I popped him in here and he, I think he comes off really well. One of the things I really liked um, is the differentiation in the book between JPL and NASA and how they're <laughs> separate but yet share very there's some overlap but would you call it a rivalry between the two there is at times bit, yeah. yeah and capturing that was sort of delightful <laughs> you know what i've been told by nasa and jpl people that the the most unrealistic part of the book is the high degree of cooperation shown between nasa and jpl <laughs> yeah that makes sense these are real potato plants that they grew and they had a potato farm in the stage next to the big stage just to have potato plants in varying stages of growth for these uh, for these scenes. It also doubled as craft service. Oh, Fucked. did it? No. Oh, <laughs> you sucked me in on that one. <laughs> Some smart ass. <laughs> when well, people said, "Did you do any research on the Roman Empire when you did Gladius?" I said, "No." I looked at a few pictures, started drawing, and. You know, the art department do a lot of work. I look at that, wow, the skies are good in there. That big uh, volcano in the background. Uh, Janty does all her research, so I get all that. 
pounded with research. I go, this is that, that's, oh my God, okay. But all I'll then jump, I'll say, I want Commodus armor to be white. Why? So you go white, because I'd seen a statue of Commodus in white marble. I thought, gotta be in white. Look great. And uh, that's, I make the broad strokes and then they've got to make it tough. One of the things I, I'm fascinated by is seeing people at work who care about each other in the off hours, you know, <laughs> the sort of the camaraderie that develops when you work with people for a long period of time. And I think these two really captured that. Vincent and Mindy? Yeah, Vincent and Mindy sort of have that ease. Mm -hmm. It felt very real to me. And part of that is a credit to the, the two of them because they're they just they're so comfortable together. It's funny here because she'd know exactly where he was to within a probably millimeter. She said, where is he? She knows his map so well she'll go right there. And he knows then right there. And then he can join the two up and get some idea. I know where he I know where he's going. Here he is. And we did a lot of driving around then, you know, by the time you edit it down, you can only just get there and find out what he's looking for, because we don't know what he's looking for. And he assumed he'd been driving around circles on this. I fortunately found a place in Budapest, which was a small world trade fair from the 80s, and it was empty, so it worked cleaning it up and worked great for me, for kind of, I don't know, Pasadena, in a way. Intercut with him looking for what is he looking for. And I figured when it was dropped, there were probably like four shoots and the whole object being a large package with large rubber balls. So then the shoots release, because you've got to release them, and let it drop, otherwise the shoots might drop on it and tangle it and fuck it up. So and suddenly it can't move because it's tangling parachute, right? That's why they drop them. The last bit they gotta drop and they gotta hope it drops the right way up. I'm sure they weight it so it, it bounces and rolls, but it's incredibly inexact. There's been one thing, been sending them signals for 30 years. And it all works off solar. I'd made the storeroom like this shitty and almost funky because I'd seen how the uh, object that they're about to reveal was stored at JPL. I don't almost like to repeat this, but it was rammed in a garage full of rubbish, Coca-Cola cans and some cigarette ends on its side, and that was it. I don't know what that equipment was worth in terms of just sheer the effort, because once the, the twin is done, it's discarded. But you think of it in a, in a science museum or something. And there it is, he says, Pathfinder, Pathfinder. We still don't know what it'll do. That's the nice thing about the film, it's always a mystery. Don't tell them, people all wanna tell them everything. That's exactly what the Pathfinder's like. We copied it. Very good model makers in this. They really made a beautiful replica of Pathfinder. I mean, it's like, that is exactly what Pathfinder looks like. I mean, <laughs> they, they did a great job of it.
Yeah, our production designer, Arthur Max, you just oh, can't yeah. say enough good things about him. He is just off the charts talented. <laughs> so um, there's a little bit of wind in the background on Mars. You can see it going on. And so all this stuff's fluttering around. Later on, he, like, you know, puts this kind of thin plastic covering over the hole where the airlock was. And I'm like, oh, it just doesn't feel right because I know that, like, Mars is, like, practically no atmosphere. And so it's like this. And the wind even blows it inward. Yep. And while I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, that's not right. And then, I, and then I said to myself, I'm like, well, you know what? I started this. Like, I'm the one who started it with the conceit that a windstorm could, like, cause all the damage. So in this kind of universe... Martian winds can blow things around. Like, yep. <laughs> and that's just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Andy. It's yeah. your fault. It's my fault. I made this happen. At first, when you told me, oh, we're going to put a crane on the back of the rover, I was like, well, that's stupid. Yeah. It simplifies so many scenes. I see now. I mean. It's a Ridley thing. I, I sort of yeah. fought it because I really <clears throat> like I, the I, sort of, you know. Throughout the movie, I like the idea that this is a very threadbare movie and you're really mm. seeing how hard it is. But I think Ridley said there's a certain point where that just gets tedious <laughs> in screen time. I think he was probably right. I mean, it solved two things. One, he it demonstrates that he has the crane when he's picking up the RTG. Yep. He didn't really need it for that, right? But now that you know he has it, it does it, it just smoothly goes by. This is how he picks up the probe. In the book, there's a whole... Oh, he builds a ramp. He has to build a ramp yep. out of dirt, like building the pyramids like the ancient Egyptians did to, so he could figure out how to get it up there. That was in the first draft. And uh, I think Ridley said, hey, I don't want to build a pyramid. <laughs> you receiving it? Yeah. I just thought we'd all rather look at a black screen instead of a vibrant red planet. Excuse me? At Tim's our finest contact. We all appreciate his serpent wit. So we're now learning the fundamentals of communication of an impossibly long shot where he's... Everyone has to assume what he's doing. They're all informed enough and clever enough to work out what the hell he's trying to do. So he puts in the basics, are you receiving me, yes or no? And then you realise that this is going to be an incredibly long discussion because the tricky thing here is... When satellite goes over, there's only one still frame, something like every seven seconds. So you can easily miss things. And once you miss that trajectory, you then got to wait 22 hours for the thing to come back around again. Or was it 17? I can't remember which. So they have to then, the next step is they have to devise a method of ASCII mathematics or trigonometry combined with the alphabet which enables them to work out a code system where they can actually talk to each other in sophisticated but simple form. That's the best way I can think of putting it. It's called ASCII, A-S-C-I-I. -I. I mean, he's obviously a scientist and he's obviously really smart. So he knows about ASCII and figures that... ASCII is kind of old-fashioned but still used. And um, so he remembers that and it goes into the boxes of the crew and uh, fundamentally n finds one of them has an ASCII chart. One of my favorite memories from the pre-production of this film is a group of us in a conference room 
showing Ridley how an ASCII table worked and then drawing it. We moved the tables aside and draw it on the sand just so he could figure out mm-hmm. how to shoot this sequence. Because <laughs> he cool. didn't he didn't sort of understand, nor did I. You had to explain it to me, and then I had to explain it to Ridley. Uh, the sort of communication would work via ASCII. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just fun. It's just fun to see people do that and then see it work so well on screen. So in a second here, you're going to see on Johansson's laptop uh, Leather Goddesses of Phobos. Right there. And that was added by you. By me, because I, I didn't I didn't put that reference no, I into lo- the book. No, I played it as a kid. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, he also he also was the designer on uh, uh, the the Infocom, a lot of the old Infocom all games. All the Infocom games. Like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and stuff that, like that. Which is how I knew it, because I played those games. Yeah. You know. And Leather Goddesses of Phobos was a little racy. Yeah. So that was, it, it felt very taboo. It, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of weird some of the stuff they found in Johansson's uh, <laughs> stuff, including like kind of Viking anime drawings that I'm like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> they spiced up her interest. We spiced a little her up bit. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I always like watching that with the, the audience because three people laugh whenever <laughs> Leather, Leather Goddesses of Phobos comes up, but those three people are my people. Those are my people. I look around and go, these are mine. <laughs> It was only like way later after, um, you know, I'd been writing it for, it was only long after I released the book that I realized, oh, yeah, the uh, Pathfinder's camera also has a y-axis, like it can rotate up and down. And so there could have been like so much more information. There could have been like maybe two or three levels of signs that it could have pointed up, down, middle. You you know what I mean? Like Yeah, it would have been challenging though, because where does he put the marker to point to? Well, he'd, he'd have, have to like build like three, a geodesic dome. Yeah, well, it. he'd have like each stick would have like three signs on it. You know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's reshoot. Let's reshoot. <laughs> let's go. Let's get Ridley on the phone. <laughs> Wake up. I'm glad at how much you guys abbreviated this. It's like one of my least favorite parts of the book. If I had it to do over again, I just, I really overdid it and put too much description into this part because I'm a computer geek. And so I'm like, ooh, I know stuff about this and I can I can really explain it in incredible detail. And I was like, yeah, no. And it really suffered, in my opinion, in the audiobook. It's the only part of the audiobook that isn't great because there's just these long streams of letters that are these abbreviated things, and the narrator had to just read them out. Oh, interesting. R.C. Bray is his name, the narrator of the audiobook. Did it's funny, really we shot job. those scenes, too. Those were... <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, but it's all voiceover there to yeah. sort of bridge us across it. Well, I, I love that you guys, like, abbreviated it because it's just dull. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that i think i, I think it's great uh, like the the general decision you guys made which is basically like okay we're gonna be scientifically accurate but we're not gonna stop and explain everything like the book does it's like so anybody who wants to double check our math on their own is gonna find out it's correct but i gotta tell you it was such a such a relief knowing that we always had that you know when i read it i kept saying look andy did all the hard stuff <laughs> you did all the hard parts all we have to do is now just tell this story and rock it forward you know that's all we had to do i also i also really appreciate you guys maintaining the communication latency that is as far as i can tell that is the hardest thing 
for uh, Hollywood to do. It's really hard. Is, it's is, really is, hard. Is accept the fact that there's a communication latency, and it's just like. I guess it does sort of go against the nature of cinema. Yeah. Because you cut between one place to another, and there's no in your mind. Right. It doesn't quite make sense. This one bit right here where yes. he doesn't get an immediate response. And so he's like, are you receiving? I'm like, well, technically he would have been waiting like 20 minutes. All right, let's no prize it. No prize he it. He waited 20 minutes. And there was no immediate response. Yep. And so he's like, hey. That's right. Yeah. We we shot those 20 minutes, but it was boring. Yeah, right. <laughs> they actually just pointed, to, <laughs> just pointed the cameras at the actors and said, no. Now just take, wait. Take 20. Yep. <laughs> Guys, can we get some space, please? This is a big deal because they have a discussion early on saying, well, no one knows he's alive. Um, when are we going to tell the public? When are we going to tell the press? This is the first time it's starting to reveal itself that he's alive and now he's literally talking to them. And so he now is asking the big question to the crew. What, what, what was the crew's reaction when they realized that I was alive? And NASA have to now admit to him that actually they don't know. So he goes ballistic. And in so doing, insults NASA, the United States, and probably the President of the United States. It actually turns out to be quite funny. Okay, he says, they don't know I'm alive? What the F word? F word in German form, F word again, is wrong with you. Mark, please watch your language. It's going to be a bad reaction. Now he has to explain to the President of the United States what the insult was and why. It is funny. Yeah. Thank God. Um, we had a really obscure word in there that he called bureaucratic felcher. But unfortunately, Felcher can't be in this film because the word is very unpleasant. Um, but um, funny in context, but we couldn't use it. Fair enough. I just had to explain to the President of the United States what a bureaucratic Felcher is. I made the mistake. I got away with two fucks because they were relevant. We earned it because I think this film tonally is so well clever and educational and entertaining and how on earth could they object to that that became our argument discussion because they both cases they were very relevant it needed some kind of expletive to make it more amusing ah here we are hermes yeah and here's the first the, full shot here is the screw up that i feel the worst about oh. is entirely on me what's which is, and it was just too late by the time you caught it, <laughs> and I feel terrible, which is, don't call it the Hermes, just call it Hermes. Hermes, yeah. And by the time that you pointed that out, and you said, it's like Serenity, Drew. Right. They never <laughs> call it the Serenity, and my heart dropped, because I realized, <laughs> oh, I've screwed this up throughout the whole thing. And well, at that point, we are so far down the hole that we couldn't change it. As long as it's consistent. I know. Right. Which We, we made sure we are consistent, but I, it still hurts me, because I want to be like Serenity. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a hurry. Yeah. I saw him turn three yesterday. The wire work is pretty pedantic and slow, but... All the actors were very good at it, and surprisingly, Jessica Chastain was very good, excellent. 
handling herself. I think because she's a ballet dancer, so there's something about balance. Dispatching them to your laptops now. I don't need to read Vogel. I wanted a room that moved to give us gravity on the ship. Hey, but everything out of this wheel is without gravity. So the wheel, by putting the wheel in, they're spinning, I think, quite simply at about, at the distance from the axis, I think it's about 40 feet radius, so you'd have an 80-foot wheel, but the outer rim would be running at five miles an hour, which would give you gravity to enable you to walk around. We'll see a very good demonstration of that in a minute, where she goes upside down, looking at somebody outside, who's the right way up. When you go from his point of view, she's the right way up and he's upside down. So it's explaining the gravitational areas. Kind of fun. Two months. Oh my God. I was strongly against that decision. It's a very dramatic moment where they're told that Mark Watney is alive and he's been alive since they've been back going to Earth. They've been traveling two months now, so he's been alive for two months. And they find that hard to deal with, that they left him behind. Lewis particularly is saying, I left him behind. I'm, I was in charge. I left him behind. They're all assuming full well that this man will die. There's no way they're going to be able to go back from him. They don't know how he's starting to cope very well for himself. I left him behind. No. In the trailer, they show the Hermes and in the gravity wheel and stuff. And so I did the math, and I, I estimated the radius of the gravity wheel because you can see Johansson looking out a window at one point. And so I said, okay, well, Kate Mara is like this height, and so this many, and it did a God freeze frame. You. So I got the, uh, the radius of it, and then I paid attention to its rotation rate. And I worked out they would, they would only have about 0.2 Gs. Okay. But you know what? It's, that's close because realistically what they would want is for it to be 0.4. So okay. it's really not that far off, because uh, you'd want 0.4 Gs, because that's Mars's gravity. So you'd want the astronauts to be prepped for Mars, right? So it's close. It's so you're close. saying we're geniuses? You're geniuses. Oh. You're geniuses. Fantastic yes. news. Well done. He is amused by the fact that now they're all talking to him. All the botanists are trying to tell him how to do it. And he said, listen, I'm the best botanist on this planet, which, of course, is right. And he's irritated by the fact of being told what to do. So... It's, it's all getting, honestly, more and more amusing. It's quite funny. Matt's proved to be very funny here. In your face, Neil Armstrong. Oh, in other news, there's been a request for me to pose for... Well, I had the potato farm because it's so cold because it was uh, Christmas, January, February. And I had to have potatoes in di different growth levels. And, of course, we allowed for it a field of them that big and then another one about six inches and then the... the so three levels and three heights of growth. Of course, I grew it all and only ever used it once. But it worked very well because he was had a series of big rooms lined with plastic. And if you stuck your head in the door, it was almost like you had a marijuana farm because the lights, the daylight lights on, certain times they're 12 hours, 12 hours, 12 hours off, shining down these plants. What is he doing? I asked for a photo and what, he's the Fonz? Just be grateful we got you something. Now he's gonna, she's asking for a still. So I'm using a camera, I don't know why we can't get a still. He said, well, to catch him at the right moment, da, 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 17 minutes, blah, blah, blah. It's hard to capture this. Well, it, she said, can't understand why not. 
So Matt then gives her a still of the farms. And she said, what is this, the farms? And uh, that was how you pay off the farms. Where you see, but I think when you're watching it, that you're wondering why on earth we're using the farms. A, because the show is beloved. Therefore, you want to take something that ran that long, maybe so you can watch it again and again. But that this is the reason for the farms. Get him in line, Vincent. We can't afford any miscommunication. I hate this margin. 912 souls worth of food. We get there on 868. And that's assuming nothing goes wrong. You guys will never see this, but a lot of the shooting I shoot without the plastic visor, I call the blister, because you see all the camera crew in the bloody blister. And sometimes they get away with it. On the side views, you, you can get away with it. But to put a blister in is quite expensive. And putting blisters in throughout the film is thousands of blisters. So it's a, it really has become very expensive. Or hundreds of blisters. This is interesting where you now see the full value and use of his uh, tape that he always carries with him. If he didn't have this tape, he'd die. What you see he does right now would save his life. So he's cracked his visor in star shape. He is leaking like a, a bucket with 19 holes in it. He's got about a minute. Plus, whatever atmosphere is left in the, in his, probably none in the uh, airlock. Of course, you have fun with the sound on this because as he covers it up, the sound, that will actually work. That will actually seal you in and save your, save your ass. Oxygen level, 5%. So, was it, so he saves himself here, clearly. And this is where you get a big reaction, where he's now going to decide what to do next. Is he going to die? Is he going to give up? And astronauts don't give up, so he's going to discover he's lost all his crop. Everything. Everything's gone. So all he's got left is what he grew were in drawers and in drawers full of potatoes. This is another thing that where I think it's, it's superior to the book, where in the book, this is a, a huge, complicated problem because he's he's in the airlock but he doesn't have a functional spacesuit so right. he needs to kind of roll the airlock to get close enough to the rover to do a mad dash or close enough to the hab to do a mad dash and he has to do all this weird stuff and i think this is this is a really good simplification and the frost on the ground is a great way of showing like why the plants are dead yep it's hard to show like oh there's no atmosphere it's practically a vacuum it's hard to show that yep but showing him just frozen and, and the brittle like this, where he's like, crack. It's like, yes, that is a dead plant. <laughs> Desolation. For you screenwriting fans, this is the midpoint. <laughs> this is the midpoint. This is the 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 all is lost portion of Act Two. It is. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I, it's, I don't need everything to hue to a three act structure, but for for a movie like this, you feel more comfortable, and it does in the book very much. You have a very strong sense of structure, 
which made our lives much easier. <laughs> Do you tend to think that way or is it just you tell the story and it just happens to fall into a you beginning, know, middle, and end? I, I think I've just been really heavily influenced by TV and movies, so right. I probably do it without thinking about it. But yeah, well, my my current the current book I'm working on now, I, I'm I'm struggling with pacing. Yeah. So uh, it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. And it was actually, I guess, his his kind of pseudo freakout was during the during the in, in the book was the airlock blow. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 right around this point. So has he got an airlock door in the back of the rover? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I didn't a, notice. There's a handle. All right, let's pretend yes. Okay. Um. Then why does it? This have is a, a this is a door. <laughs> this is a tough one to no prize. Yes. <laughs> we'll come up Your with it. Let me think. Challenge. Let me think on this one. <laughs> Crops are dead. Complete loss of pressure boiled off most of the water. Any bacteria that survived died in the sub-zero temperatures when exposed to Mars. I think it's pretty cool that you guys never bothered to... Um, I don't think you, you ever say... You, you never explain what a sol is. But it's so clear from context that you don't have to. It look, it and was in nice. the book. You you never explain in the book, do you? Yeah, that's that was an oversight. <laughs> no, but it, I loved it. I remember thinking right away... Because it, it takes you a little while to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But when you do, there's a real sense of, oh, uh, this is exciting that I'm <laughs> learning, not by being told. It's actually happening. And I thought that that was sort of our mission statement with the whole movie. Like, we, we try not to stop and explain too much. It, it, occasionally we need to, but part of it's what I loved about the book. Like, you talk up to the reader, not down to the reader. I'll let you call Bruce. Give him the news. Okay, I'm uh, I'm gonna need to change of clothes. I have I have to point out that uh, Hermes is powered by a nuclear reactor and has huge solar panels, <laughs> so one wonders why a nuclear powered ship, which has enough power for the uh, ion drive, needs uh, solar panels. But I've got a no prize for that. Okay, let me try to win one too. Oh, okay. No, I've got I've got I've. I've got an answer, but let's see what you got. How about it's a redundancy? It's a what if the nuclear reactor breaks? Mm. You want to have you want to have a backup, right? Is uh, that possible? That's a, that's a possible, but that's a lot of weight to put up there as an alternate. Like, okay. Power How about this? It looks cool. It looks cool is always the good winner, All right? But here's my no prize entry. Um, those are not solar panels. They are thermal panels mm. to dump the heat generated by the reactor. Okay. Cool. So it needs a lot more thermal panels than a typical. Because there's a lot of heat. Because there's a lot of heat. Great. There, there's my no price. So those are not solar panels. Those are those are uh, thermal panels. I love it. Mars is fine. <laughs> I accidentally blew up the hab, but unfortunately, all of Commander Lewis's disco music still survived. This is very nice here. This uh, is a touching scene. Now the crew know that he's alive. They're now able to, are allowed to communicate with Mark Watney. And so the crew is very laconic and laid back and funny and with each other. And it's a charming conversation where Michael Pena, as the pilot is elected, draw the short straw, as he says, 
and they talk a lot of this gallows humour about what his position is and the crew all are feeling very vulnerable and as Mark Watney's feeling very vulnerable, it's a lovely scene. That kind of helps him, inspires him. Such great people, normal people, he decides to keep going. So now I wonder what the hell he's going to do and what he does right now would work. All he got to do is seal out, there's no atmosphere. All he got to do is seal that room so he can reheat it, etc., and start all over. His one peril will be if a storm comes and blows a hole in that thing. But he's double, pl treble plasticed it. Plastic and gaffer tape. I also get a lot of questions about gravity. Not the yeah. movie, but the, the force of gravity on Mars. Yep. Now, I think it's an interesting thing. I don't know if it was you or Ridley. It seems more like Ridley. But basically, in the scenes when he's outside, or when he's like not in a protected environment like here, there's a slight, I think, a slight slowdown of the film or something like that. So it, it feels like the gravity's a little less. And that was uh, kind of the compromise, I think. I don't think there's a single movie that takes place on Mars that actually shows people at Mars gravity. It's, re it's really hard to show. It's really that hard the to problem. show. It's, it's not like we weren't conscious of it. You gotta put people on wires or do a lot of visual effects and it's incredibly prohibitively expensive yeah. if you wanna do it. I just like saying, what, it's the conceit, okay? This is a movie. No, it's, it's true. It's, we were definitely conscious of it. We, we yeah. were trying to justify it any way we could, but the truth is, if we wanted to show it, we couldn't make the movie. And even if you could, it would just look weird. Yes. It would just, it would feel weird. It would look weird. Everything would be kind of not right. It's the way if you hear a gun put a real gunshots, gun yeah. they, they, it would sound weird because there's a movie language that we get used to. Yeah. can't keep being stalwart so here he is trying to keep himself busy and concentrating on survival but he can't forget the storms that occur every night hoping that that door doesn't blow because if it does he's done and this canning potatoes here is lovely because he kind of breaks down a little bit in the middle of it I thought it was really cool this is where sound helps in the silence you play up the sound the fear here the habitat has been battered, probably stormed about 180 kilometers an hour. Introducing a mathematical genius, Rich Purnell. Rich. And I'm not saying all mathematical geniuses are scruffy and live in pigsties, but this guy does, because he sleeps on the job, literally. And he's been trying to work out the mathematics of where they are, what the reality is. And it's quite funny, but this thing, that occurs was an accident and I just kept running and he was just kept going. He said, it's okay. He jumped up and went, I just kept it. He stood on his own coffee and slipped. I thought, shit, he's hurt himself. Fuel requirement is nearly identical. Not a good time to launch, is it? 
I like things to not be too planned. I know what I want the scene to be like, I know the geometry, and then I'll rehearse immediately. This is the first take. I always do want to take immediately, so there, bam. That's a real four. Gets up, oh, I'm okay. Goes into the kitchen, and um, this is all one take. And you rehearse it, you kill it. So it always film, first take, just filming. For the most part, you're probably gonna get 80%. You do understand I'm your boss, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's ask the $200 million, I'm sorry, 500. Is that a five? At least. All right, let's ask the Get back to JPL talking to NASA. In all their rooms, they are communicating by, you know, Skype. Skype is wonderful, because Skype now stops endless flights and stuff like that. When flying becomes no more fun anymore, it doesn't, right? Unless you're going on holiday. I hate to fly, and if I can avoid it, I do. I use Skype wherever I can. And so even my visual effects in France, I'm doing to London. I'm spotting 3D visual effects on a desk in France. Anyone else know a safer way to buy more time? And you know, visual effects are technically now refining them now, color grading. Do the whole film in a day. Used to be six weeks, but you got to have really good graders. So I use the guys here. Stefan is like, and I know what I want. So it's like up, down, up, down, left, right, boom, next. So this morning we do 120 visual effects in 45 minutes. And you know they're not from scratch. They've been gradually coming to that point. This is a meatloaf. So here's today's allotment. Of course, I've supplemented with a potato, which I'm beginning to hate with the fiery passion of a thousand suns. And now they've asked me to do that. The point is, stretch the rations four more days. This is ad-libbed at the end. I like his line, ad lib, which is, uh, it has been seven days since I ran out of ketchup. So now he's dipping his spud in Vicodin. I'm dipping this in Vicodin, so no one can stop me. And he does it and then says, it has been seven days since I ran out of ketchup. It has been seven days since I ran out of ketchup. <laughs> that's Matt, by the way. Was that Yeah, that's a Matt Adlib. It's great. That's good. <laughs> we need to account for the new satellite adjustments. We still haven't received the old satellite adjustments. Well, I asked for those two weeks ago. What's Rich doing? We're scared to go in there. Rich, what the hell are you doing? I need you to get me some supercomputer time. When did you last sleep? It's important, Mike. I'll do it. This clip is in the trailer, and so I love how you can pause it and see the um, all the uh, mission patches up on the wall. Yep. And they just smoothly transition from real ones to made-up ones. That's right. <laughs> it's just like. Yeah, MAV is, is one of them up on the wall. This is the flight director. I was really sad that the uh, the actual launch status check 
Like like the Apollo 13 scene wasn't yeah. in there. And we a, talked about it. But it yeah, no, but it was it written. It's one of those things know. that just got cut down. It's The movie yeah. was the movie's long, and it's like that's a thing that can go. And we're getting into the section of where the cuts get more and more painful. Like, <laughs> yeah. and I remember you said this when we first talked in our very first conversation. Like this is it's in this back half that you, we started to have to make the tough decisions because mm. at a certain point the movie would just be five hours long. Right. You know. I thought this was pretty clever. The uh, Iris launch, the way um, because there just wasn't really enough budget. Yep. To 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 show the the ship. So I think it's clever to show everything from the MCC's point of view, and then it can just be kind of grainy and. Actually, is actually file footage? Is that? I don't know. It's a it's a Ridley question, but it was definitely we don't do a lot of objective point of view, you know, mm-hmm. in the movie. It's occasionally there, but in general, you're you're with characters. I think it was a little premature for them to be celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of conversations about when they should be celebrating. I remember that. The guy who, who did the electric car, um, Musk. Our um, design of our uh, MAV, Mark Evacuation Vehicle, is at Musk's, fundamentally. And he's designed when we looked at it, we kind of thought it was pretty cool. It's kind of more streamlined than you expect, and it, but his is reusable. It will take off, dock, get rid of, come back, land and sit there as an asset, as opposed to being spun off into space and there's God knows how much resource just wasted. You've got to reuse this stuff. Right. But you know, these, these aircraft are very strong. You get a 747 is 30 years old. With all the stresses that goes through, it's unbelievable. So this is where they fail. So this is the fundamentally a kind of death sentence on, on Mark Watney. They're getting what he describes as a, an irregular pattern, which is an understatement. And in the book, on the takeoff, some of the cargo had shaken loose and created an imbalance, setting the, the rocket into a kind of spiral. Now they have a problem. So now we bring in new players, which is China. Actually, that was a question I asked to the real NASA mission controllers. So I was like, they have a shift and they have to be at their station all the time. I'm like, right. how, do, how do you go to the bathroom? And it's like, well, they can spell each other a bit. Okay. For the most part, the other controllers, the ones other than Flight and Capcom. Uh, so Flight is the equivalent of Mitch. Right. right. And Capcom is the person who actually talks to the astronauts. Other than those two, it's okay for the others, if for anyone else, to just go run down the hall and you know, take five minutes to go to the bathroom or whatever. But they eat at their desks and stuff like that. So the MCC is actually like littered with food and stuff all the really? time. It's actually pretty, pretty kind of grimy, and, it's, and that's awesome. But the uh, Capcom and Flight actually spell each other. Oh, interesting. So like when Capcom has to go to the bathroom or whatever, take a quick break, then Flight acts as Capcom. And when Flight has to go, then Capcom will spell. What happens when they both have to go at the same they, time? They don't. Oh. They, they have to, like, one or the other. All right. Yeah. Oh, and another thing, there are still periods where ISS goes through LOS. So there are parts of its orbit where they are actually not able to communicate with it. You, you wouldn't think that. Right. Right. Why? I don't know, but it just has to do with the, where it's like over the middle of the Pacific Ocean and stuff like that. So then they can take breaks during LOS because there's 
nothing to do. Do you think that those breaks are real or they're just making them up so that they can go to the bathroom? <laughs> We've got LOLs here. Now go to China. China are a new player in this. That was the opera house in Budapest. I just put the Chinese letter forms above the door and it looks like Beijing to me. And that could be the Yangtze over the back there. So that worked great as well. I was just down the road from that. I got it all in one spot. And two very good Chinese actors. This woman is the biggest television actress, very important television actress in China. And the scene is kind of nice because it is the Chinese working out how they can actually help the United States. So I thought a bit of globalization of help here is actually not corny, it's a good idea. So they decide to help. You know, it's, it's interesting, everyone thinks Teddy is such a cold-hearted jerk, but his reaction to being given the information that they will help tells me that he's got what it takes. He really cares about what is going to happen, but he can't afford to show it right here, there. Yes. So this is interesting, the China angle. I'm glad that that uh, made it into the yeah. movie. And I think the studio is really happy because, of course, this means this makes it easier to market in China. Yeah, though I don't think that that's why. I think people right. people think that we added this after the fact to try to get <laughs> right. some sort of you know financial relief, but it's it's not true. It's in the book, and the, it's one of the things I loved about it because it felt like what would happen, mm. right? I mean, you know this better than I do. Yeah, right. But well, they're the next space program, right? Yep, they, they would have this capability. Mm -hmm. I, and I love that it's in I love that it's in Chinese and and dubbed, or rather subtitled and stuff like that. One thing it is kind of, yeah, is um, they, in the book, the Chinese come to the rescue pretty much because they do it in exchange for getting an astronaut on, on an Ares mission. And yep. it, so it's a deal. It's a, it's a tit for tat. But in this, they change it to they just kind of did it to be nice. Well, they, yeah, and we shot that. You shot, you shot it got cut down and you'd have to ask the powers that be as to why that happened however you still at the end at the end you still see him you still see him but it's not really clear that he's a Chinese astronaut but we now have the two writers here and we can tell you yes we can tell you he right is, now that is, he the, is Chinese, the Chinese astronaut 100% and, and that's name, why there I can even tell you his them. name is like Wei yeah right? and, and you see them there because I love that I love the sort of mm. horse trading yeah with that, for sure and uh, yeah and I think it was because um, they, I, I'm, I'm not sure the um, like Chinese censors would let it by. If, I don't know uh, if, if any of that's true or was, not. No? Okay. Uh, but I know that scene was much longer. Mm -hmm. It was just much longer. And at a certain point, scenes get shorter. Hmm. You know? The scene was written as a form of explanation. And I suddenly realized to explain it is complicated, so it was better to show it. And so I had him do this on the spot, which is pick up the thing and do this and do that and do that. So it's a demonstration. And I was kind of worried it was a bit comedic, but actually I think it works out nicely. Teddy, I'm the director of NASA. Cool, Teddy. Yeah, a lot of underplayed humor is always the best. He played straight. I said, excuse me, who are you? Um, 
Teddy, head of NASA. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just love that. That's a great interplay. In the book, it was much more technical, and it was a series of different scenes in different places and stuff. But this is just this awesome scene where Drew had to explain how this stuff works, which is actually pretty complicated. And also, they had asked him to add more Donald Glover. Yep. Right. And so just like two birds with one stone, have Donald Glover come in and explain it with cool props and stuff. Yeah, and it, it was one of those times where you get notes and it makes the movie better. Mm. You know, it's nice when you, it doesn't make you want to pull your hair out. <laughs> this was just the studio saying, you know, can we can we explain this? How about if you put Donald Glover in that scene? And I said, <laughs> oh my God, that's great. I've done the math. Checks out. I like it when he says, uh, get out. <laughs> get out. <laughs> I love Jeff Daniels so much. Yeah, and then the fastidious, that's also in the book, is that Teddy is very fastidious. He's always, like, straightening things and stuff. And so uh, when I met Jeff at the premiere, I complimented him on that. He's like, yeah, I had a thing I did with my ring. He's always, like, he kind of screws with his ring. What am I missing? Why is that important? This was an art gallery, and we just moved around concrete walls. Those walls aren't real. I just had one big, giant space, so we made walls on casters and I like to work that way I just move them around change the size of the room redress the room so this room is also Jutel's office the other side is Teddy's office just shift walls it's good because you can reuse the walls a few rubber plants a few chairs and Bob's your uncle then we lose the crew so what we either have a high chance of killing one person or a low chance of killing six people how do we make that decision? We don't have to so make this it. this is where um, they have to do it. They're going to do it with the Chinese. Still have a chance to bring five astronauts home. The Chinese will waste a ship, but they will use their launch and take the Chinese food supply. You goddamn coward. So he's been doing EVAs throughout the day, uh -huh. but there's a pattern to them. Here, watch this. So he goes 300 meters and then stops, and then he goes another 300 and stops. Nobody's giving him any instructions? I mean, JPL didn't schedule something? No, he's at the rover. Oh, okay, so we just got this. Chem analysis sample batch 1A7C. Commander Lewis's geocompositing experiments. <laughs> He's finishing the mission. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, we evac 18 souls into a 31 soul mission, which means we've got 13 souls worth of experiment and research left to do. So, Commander Lewis, your work is in good hands. 
back. I do not understand hemolithotrophic detection. I mean, at all. But I'm um, working on it, working my way through it. Hey, uh, Johansson. I know you don't like it when I touch the chem cam, but I'm touching the chem cam. A lot. Vogel, your core samples in very good hands. Actually, I think I found a new cataloging system for the core samples. I've actually titled it Das Core Samples, out of respect for the fatherland. And finally, Martinez. Um, I'm still not sure what it is that you do. Um, Honest to God, I, I really couldn't tell you. Um, I don't know why we brought you. That's it. Anyway, I'm trying to keep everything documented, organized. I know it's not my strong suit, but uh, I do want everything to make sense, just in case uh, things don't break my way. Actually, you could teach all this in a class someday. Um, you know, the good stuff, like how to make a bathtub using NASA tubing in an old RTG, uh, how to cook a potato about 6,000 different ways. The Mark Watney syllabus. This is where they get the first communication from Richard Purnell. I'm using one of these pods. Uh, this is the room for the gymnasium. It's cool, that nice, right? And, you know, I try the camera on the floor. Of course, you don't see it move. So you have to pull out the walls and put the camera outside the room so then the room is moving like that. So I've got a 15-second swing. I didn't make the whole wheel. I just made a pendulum to go, ready, action, cut. So then you run out. You've got to be there. Actually, 11 seconds to walk through the floor. It's a long time. So each one on that wheel is four spokes. Each spoke is probably half as down to this room, the ladder. A bit like those bodies of those propellers that you get in the farm, the wind farm. That kind of technology. But all of the, your outer room's got to move at five miles an hour and you're walking. It's shocking, isn't it? This is a little bit of cinema OS stuff going on here where we have the... Uh, if it's a pure text file, it wouldn't be animated like this, right? View as text does this. <laughs> Maybe they have an additional program. Yes. That makes it more exciting. <laughs> View as text. Their, more cause exciting. Because they, they know astronauts get bored. Yeah, right. I also like how when you view as text, it just it cycles randomly through yep. letters. until. <laughs> I like how there's even a little bit of angle where Lewis is standing and stuff. Yep. It, I mean, I'm guessing that this was all just done with Batman cam, right? Just no, tilt the camera. No, the, the set swung. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the set actually rotated. Not fully, but it, it was definitely oh, a swivel. So they would swivel as he ro as yeah, they yeah. walked. Yeah, yeah, because they would get that. And then the lights would also swivel. It was a complicated endeavor. That's cool. So this is where she's saying, what do you want to do? This is the plan. Let's not mince words, this is about mutiny. You'll never be used again. They'll never allow you up here again, no matter what your motives are. And they say, great, I've had enough. 
one lifetime. And let's go. And let's go. Let's go back. And I'll I'll do an, I'll add another nine months to my life in space to go back and say Mark Watney. Very strong, Jessica. Here, as the captain, who's very cool, never loses her cool, never gets angry, never loses her temper. Completely balanced. Sign me up. All right, cowboy, slow down. Actors like this, you don't read them. You just meet them. I meet with them. I I know what they can do. And we just chat. I, I like. I just like to get to know them. That's all. You know, it's a shared process, and um, I take one each one individually. Spend time with each one individually. We talk about the characters, who they are. Then I know they're going to go away and really think about that, and they'll bring things to the table as well. Thinking, I think this, I think that, and I say that's cool. When they really feel that they've been thinking really about what they're going to do. And every one of these, believe me, is so pro. They know they've thought a great deal about who they are and what they're going to do. Makes my job easier. I can do it. The one thing I add to that, as I cast very carefully, I'll know who did what before. And that said, I can still start using first-time people. But then you've got to read them and things like that. You know. He's very good. I watched him in a film. A German, uh, Scandinavian film called Headhunter. That's why I cast him. Thought he was really interesting. He was the lead of Headhunter. You're handsome. <laughs> yes. Oh, <yeah. So for those who don't know, Steely-Eyed Missile Man is a great compliment in NASA culture, where it is rarely, rarely handed out. Uh, they will, you, you, if you solve a very difficult problem, you, they, they will call you a Steely-Eyed Missile Man. Now, are there other compliments along that ladder? Is there? I, I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're a copper-eyed bullet yeah, man. Yeah, right. I would like, <laughs> like to know. If you screw up, you're like a tin-eyed <laughs> rock man. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, so during the launch of Apollo 12, the Saturn V, as they were launching, got struck by lightning twice. Actually, just like two shots, one after another. Because it turns out the uh, the exhaust from a Saturn V rocket is ionized, and it and it's basically acts like a lightning rod. Really? It, it's, it just can follow the exhaust trail all the way to the ground. So it's actually not that uncommon, and they accounted for it. They have, like, a lightning rod on the ship and stuff. But uh, the Saturn V, during its ascent, this is Apollo 12, got struck by lightning twice, and their computer systems just went completely haywire. Just all of their systems were just, like, just, like, fritzing out, all of the war caution and warning lights came on and stuff like that. All the indicators popped off and, and said, like, oh, everything has broken. And this one guy, and I wish I could remember his name, we could look it up some other day, but um, at NASA said, like, oh, I think I've seen this problem before. It'll happen when there's, like, an overcharge in this one system. He says, switch SEC to AUX. And no one in mission control knew what the hell he was talking about. No one knew what he meant. So, but they just said, like, okay, Capcom, tell them, switch SEC to AUX. So Capcom sent it up, and, like, out of the three astronauts aboard, only one of them knew what that meant. 
<laughs> the lunar module pilot, Alan Bean, went, wait, I think I know what that is. And it's this one switch off on the panel. SEC has two modes, and he switched it to aux, and it completely took care of all the problems. That's and, amazing. And so that guy at Mission Control was, you know, you are a steely-eyed missile man. Is he the only person that has been in? No, no. there have been others. Okay, yeah. but they, they give it out sparingly? Yes, they get. Well, it's not an official thing, but it's like... Mm. <laughs> the greatest minds on planet Earth. Really, all of the brain power on the entire planet helping me with this endeavor. I thought this was funny. He said, the best thing, that I've got the entire attention of the and this scientific body, and all they've come up with so far is drill holes in the roof of your vehicle, hit it, hit it with a rock, and jump on it. And this guy went through faster than I thought. I thought he'd take his armpits out. Same guy, stunt, stunt, here we go, bang. Oh, oh. Back to China. This is the thanks. The deal is sealed here. That worked well, didn't it, for Yangtze and all that? Great. This montage, I think, is, is actually my favorite part of the movie. Yeah? I just feel like it all comes together. It's like, we have a plan. Yeah, you sort of see the spirit. I, You know, I love the idea of drilling holes in the rover on one <laughs> end and showing... Like, it just feels like science to me. Like, we're <laughs> all like figuring science. it out. That's and what science is. It's a little rough, but they're, <laughs> they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And then you mix that with the emotional component of people saying goodbye to their families. Mm -hmm. I just feel like the themes of the movie and the book are all on display here. And you just can't go wrong with Bowie. You just can't go wrong no. with Bowie. No. Oh, also, I, right. I love this ad lib. He didn't do cheese. Wait, Delights me. What? So uh, Bruce, uh -huh. after they take the picture, he go, He looks to his compatriots and goes, he didn't do cheese. <laughs> he didn't, do, <laughs> he didn't cheese. do cheese. It really makes me laugh every time. This is his lung. He's attaching a lung to enable him to have a larger atmosphere and inside his vehicle, so he could drive longer. In the movie, it's the only time you ever see that Lewis truly does love disco. Yep. It's always been something just inflicted on Mark. <laughs> well, and also at the very, very end in her house. Yes. You can see they have like framed disco albums and stuff like that. He drives for four hours, then he runs out. So he then has to hibernate for 13 hours, the best thing to do is go to your suit and sleep while the solar energy is recharging and the whole thing's being charged again to drive for another four hours. So the journey is endless, being 3,200 kilometers at 25 miles an hour. Doing 25 or a train like that, you've got to be careful that you don't turn it over or, you know, snap something. Like the, uh, Jiangkwang launch complex. Do you know what they used for it? Um, I do not. Because it's, it's obviously very different than the MCC set. Or maybe they just redressed the... Uh, Probably. But, but it's like the, um, the MCC set is built in that, in that place in Budapest that has the weird windows in the background, and that's not there. Right. So, well, if they redressed the MCC set, they did a great job of it. I mean... <laughs> And this is another, uh, you know, sneaky, we got away with a launch without having to put the special effects yes. into it. Yep. Because <laughs> those launches are expensive. Yeah. They really are. 
But so he's just saying, do we really need this? I said, well, yeah, we're doing a space film. So this is where you get the upside down effect of gravity change. Look, she's upside down. He's the right way up and then vice versa. I like this a little bit of a little bit of Beck and Johansson. Just a little touch. Just uh <laughs> I was a little sad that the uh kind of romance plot between uh Johansson and Beck it didn't go away, right? Cuz they do have that little kiss thing in the climax scene and then at the end you see him with the baby. Yep. So, it's clear that that happened, but there were a couple of Well, the big one and we shot it, we just had to cut it for time is the everything is going wrong on the Hermes scene. Right. You know, like, because that's the one where she tells him to, they can share the bunk. Right. That's the one where they sort of tip the hat at it, and we shot it. Yeah. It just comes at the section of the movie where it was time to get to it. And it, it's also too bad because Martinez is a smartass, and he's funny and yes. stuff, and, it, and that's like, he goes, yeah, Million Mile High Club or whatever, and that's too bad that was gone. Yes. He's very thin now. The, when I, I saw in the screenplay that that um, he has a, a body double, right? Um, oh, in the credits. Mark, yeah, well, a Mark Watney double. Yes. So there was one was Mark Watney, one X was his stunt man, and then one XX was body double. And I'm like, aha, they got a butt double or something like that. But it, was, it wasn't. It was like the super thin emaciated guy double. Yep. <laughs> yep. I've been thinking about laws on Mars. There's an international treaty saying no country can lay claim to anything that's not on Earth. And by another treaty, if you're not in any country's territory, maritime law applies. So Mars is international waters. Now, NASA is an American non-military organization. It owns the HAB. But the second I walk outside, I'm in internet. This speech is in the book. This speech is great. <laughs> How did you <laughs> I figure don't this out? Do you remember? <laughs> I... I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know. It was just a random thought. Well, you were, look. You wrote this over four years. Uh, about three years. Yeah. How did you know? Did you have a good plan, uh, or do you just sort of write and go chapter to chapter and let it roll? Uh, I just yeah. I just went chapter to chapter. I knew how I wanted it to end. Okay. But I didn't know exactly how I'd get there. I just kind of went one uh, one scene at a time. I one problem at a time usually. Okay. And I love this thing. I don't know if it was you or Ridley where he leaves his helmet behind. It's Ridley, and I Is love it. It's, it's so human. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. yeah you know. And he's walking triumphantly out like, do, 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 do. And he's like, oh, right. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah, that's a big moment in the in the book when he's leaving the hab. Yep. Which has been like his savior for... <laughs> well, actually, because you've got so much of the existing disco pop, which works really well on a very humorous level, then we've gone pretty majestic and pretty uh, orchestral. Nice, beautiful. In the book, he had two rovers, and he cannibalizes one of them to turn it into the thing that carries all this stuff for the second one. Uh, this was much more simplified. And a lot of people didn't notice that one of the rovers got destroyed by the MAV launch right at the beginning. You, yep. you actually see it. It happens. It's there. But, but it goes by pretty quick. 
You can see it. It's just getting baked by the blast. And we talked about it more in the first cut. It was much more about Rover 1 and Rover 2 and what we were doing, and we found it was just confusing. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing that was, because in the book, this speech happens much earlier. And when we shot it, th- this whole section was earlier, and we moved it in editing because it just felt like this is where we wanted to get more existential. Isn't it during his trip to Schiaparelli? Is it this part? Or is it is it is oh it might have been during his trip to Pathfinder. I think I think that's where it was at least in the script originally. Oh, okay, okay. Was the trip to Pathfinder. But this look, this is where the biggest cuts happen, I think. Yeah. Between script between book and script. And this is the right place to cut him too. Because it took a lot of pages for him to do his trip. And they um, do do a beautiful job with the score and, and just yeah. the visuals of of selling the idea that it takes a long time. But the thing that makes me saddest that we couldn't do, and this is on me 100%, because I couldn't quite figure out how to write it, is the dust storm. Like, oh. it's really hard, and I love it in the book. But there's two problems. One, it illustrates the difference between the the wrong physics dust storm and the right physics one. There's uh, that. The other, yeah. It, um, <laughs> it's also just on a pure practical level. Daytime dust storms like that are difficult to shoot. And at the time, mm. I was thinking I was going to direct it, and I couldn't figure out how we were going to make it look convincing. And then so if you'd th- known it was going to be Ridley's problem. Maybe, but, <laughs> but, th- but there was a third, there was a third problem, mm. which is he would not be talking about the problem at that time mm. because he would be trying to save his life. Like it's the book problem where mm. you're relating something that happened well, after the fact. Are you talking about the thing where he drops off the sensors? Yes, and then he gets cut off from NASA. Yeah. He, he, he got because, cut off for earlier. No, yeah, yeah, but I mean, because he's cut off, he can't talk to anyone. Right. Right. So he can't. Oh, and and you didn't want to cut him off from NASA. Well, we didn't. Yeah. And so the problem is, and we could have done that to justify it, but the real problem was he'd be trying to save himself. He wouldn't be articulating as it was happening. And if you didn't articulate it, it was hard to sell Hmm. exactly what was happening to the audience. It was a a triply challenging thing. You could have articulated it because that was a process that took him days, but it would have required you to cut him off from NASA. But there was one period where... They're all hoping, you you know this better than I do, where NASA's watching, hoping to God that he's going to figure it out in a very right. short time, right? Right. There's well, one period where if he doesn't get it solved in that time, he's in trouble. Right, yeah. And With, that, which would be the part we would want to do. That's the part that's hard to verbalize. Right. You know? Uh, I, I think you were right to cut it. I mean, honestly. I think I it wish was, we could have figured it out, but I, yeah. I, I, I could not. Couldn't quite crack how to do it. Yeah, this is done to a nice, uh, really beautiful piece of score by Harry Gregson Williams. But oh, the score right through this is really kind of majestic and touching. And uh, when he's growing his crops, there's a kind of nobility to the music. It's very nice. The gravity, the gravity, the gravitas comes from the music, which is sometimes a nice counterpoint to what he's doing. Um, he's, well, it, it, it can't enter Mars's orbit, otherwise they'll never have There's a great American composer that I like and talked about called Copeland, Aaron Copeland, High Plains and uh, things like that. It's like fantastic, but very emotional, but somehow uh, inspiring, yeah, nice. Well, you can do that, right? Well, there's some gimmies right off the bat. The, the design presumes 500 kilograms of Martian soil and samples. Obviously, we won't do that. And there's just one passenger. 
instead of six. Mm -hmm. The suits and gear, that's another 500. Ditch life support, don't need it. And we'll get Mark to wear his EVA suit. Yeah, I think, I think Benny's going to be really amazed how well this worked out. Poor bugger locked on the other side of the studio doing this again and again. And then we suddenly put it into JPL and I think he suddenly started to twig. But I think he comes off really well. And I, I suddenly realised I had to have the two nose cones. It wasn't planned. I said, I want the two nose cones. I said, well, one, one's a studio and one's a rough car. I want them. So we brought them in and it helps enormously. Just to, I don't know how I didn't think that I would have to have two nose cones, but they fortunately made them. One was a good one. And when it was cardboard, I said, I don't give a shit. And I thought, that's the cardboard one. They'd probably make up a cardboard mock-up first. Now the stuff the cone they put in the shoot over and everything is like, oh! The ground's fantastic. And this is, I love the scene, it's kind of really f funny. And everything they say here is feasible. You really don't need anything on the front because there's no air to keep in or keep out. He said there is zero you're a vacuum. Should I go on? No. <laughs> Are you I love the scene. This is funny, these two. Are you fucking kidding me? You think he means it like... He means the first word, the second word. Are you kidding me? He means Ella? Mm -hmm. Or like... Are you kidding Because he's the boss, she's funny, because she she'd better let him win. Oh. Really? Uh-huh. Could be the first Could be that. I can't wait for the actors to see it, actually, because I think that is 600 kilometers across. That's real. That is actually a Shepherdy crater. 600 kilometers across. A quarter of the United States. Isn't that bizarre? No, I know exactly what you're doing. But then, you know, you look at the Atlantic from the air and you're 3,000 miles. 
maintain their planners. Okay, this is my favorite story of collaboration between you and I because <laughs> so essentially I needed to write a scene that explained to the audience what's about to happen. Like we really wanted to set up this scene is basically what is Act Three? <laughs> yes, we're going to explain to you Act Three, and we wanted to make it clear because we wouldn't have any more time from this point on to explain anything, mm -hmm. right? So we want to talk about it. So I, I write the scene, and then I call Andy, and I'm like, "Let me talk you through it." And you immediately made fun of me for being wrong about physicists using the word fast. And my brain, whenever that happens, goes, "Oh, I love that so much. Let's put it in the movie." You know, like that's what happened here. And I remember this phone call between you and me, as you're like, "No, that will never work, Drew. Physicists uh, wouldn't use that word." And I thought, "Oh, let's just put that you in just the movie. Worked it in. Let's just do it because yeah. that's the stuff that delights me." <laughs> love this soliloquy right through to let's do this and then i think we saved the last for the best which was um, my favorite band abba i'm sure they're going to be surprised i mean they're formidable and they they are all really sensible smart great they knew what they were doing i love his cynicism here well mm. I like it. I like how it sounds too. Let's go. Little joke at the end, which yeah, I think it's worth it. Because it'd be covered in dust. Can you imagine getting there? The electricity doesn't work. <laughs> I've always meant to ask him about this, whether it was something decided on the day or if it, he had this plan. But the idea that the <laughs> dust covered up the buttons is so great. <laughs> It's like leaving his helmet behind on the table and then walk out. He couldn't do that and open the door, he'd be dead. Have you ever been in a foreign country, stopped on the side of the road, had a picnic, driven off, and you're on the wrong side of the road? Have you ever done that? You forget and people are flashing in, you think, fuck you, you're on the wrong side of the road. Film set every day is a bit like that. But there's always some prick there sort of saying, well, what are you doing? What are you doing this for? I got over that years ago. It no longer happens. It hasn't happened for a while, actually. But it, when, as a director, you've got to learn to say, back off, you know, uh, or never even let it in. The key is never to let it in. That is to say, you can't be a total prick about everything and, and say, I know best. But as a director, really, you should know best. That's your job. It's a bit like a conductor, honestly, should know best. Right? When he taps the lectern, he really should know what he's doing. If you've got to start asking questions, you shouldn't be doing the job. Your, your father, mother, uh, to all things, and that's the job. If you don't like it, don't do it. Or stop whining. thought of it but that uh that bit where uh where i mean until you pointed it out just now that bit where he's in the rover um and and that's like the last chance you really have it for is. exposition that's right yeah from his point of view so we're sort of begin act <laughs> three right here we're yeah. off to the races 
How many times you kill Watney? The important thing is that I got all scenarios in orbit. That's the important thing. He's ready. Okay. Here's the plan. Martinez flies the MAV. Johansson sysops the ascent. Beck Vogel. I want you guys in airlock too, with the outer door open before the MAV even launches. Okay. Once we hit intercept, it's Beck's job to go get Watney. He may be in bad shape when I get him. The stripped down MAV will get up to 12 Gs during the launch. He could be knocked unconscious, may even have internal bleeding. Well, it's a good thing you're a doctor. They all know, but no one's saying it, that he could die, they could drop the ball. But they're here to make this work. Can you imagine a team like this who've had no real practice? For, I've been, how long have they been now flying? I, I, two and a half years, two, two years. They're actually, and they're still getting on, and that, that's half the qualification. The psychology of an astronaut has to be an ultimately reasonable but very decisive person. You can't have any ultra personality. You don't want that. I mean, this is pretty much exactly like the book. And it was rough for me in the book to have these astronauts explaining things to each other that they would all know. But, I mean, the audience has to know, and there's just no one for them to be explaining this to. So... <laughs> I also, I do actually buy that it's such a complicated thing they want Let, to go over. Let's it. go through this. <laughs> let's go through this and make sure we're not missing something that right. feels real to me. Yeah, but it always makes me feel a little, ugh. Yeah, I, I know. When, oh, well, not so much that scene, but in general, when I have to do, like, exposition, that can be frustrating. That's like... Well, of, it, it is, I you know, it, when you think about this movie, the sheer amount of exposition we don't yeah. do yeah. is amazing to me that we got away with. <laughs> I mean... It's what you do in the book. I think clearly your disdain for it <laughs> comes through in the book. Like, we barely talk about these people's lives before this. <laughs> the, you know, we barely talk about so much stuff that in most movies they would always talk about ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it delights me how much of this story is told through action. <laughs> it's like, the characters are not very deep, right? I mean, what do we know about Lewis? She likes disco. Yeah, but you know what? She's a good commander. <laughs> but I also think the emotion of it is strong, and that's yeah. what gets us through, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not about, when I was a kid, I lost a, my, a toy astronaut, now I have to find a real astronaut. Right. Crap like that. It's like, no. <laughs> I define my character through what I do rather than what I say. Right. Which is really hard in Hollywood to trust. This gentleman is actually CNN, and actually one of the more former CNN newscasters in, in Europe right now. German, and uh, very good. I asked him to come in to do that interview, and, and he was so good, we just used him at the studio for the, uh, the, we did all that, the studio gates. The gates of NASA are the gates of the studio. And, you know, we put mass and everything inside it, I always thought the, the gates were kind of, you know, blingy. I thought, why not NASA? Let people go, nah, nah, so you've got to, you're not listening to that. You've just got to go, no, that's going to be the studio gates. The mirror brings him to a point of reality, he looks awful. This is not vanity, it's, I think it's like the Last Supper, frankly. Does he think this is going to work? I think he doesn't even allow it in that it's not going to work. It's like being a sportsman here. You cannot afford to ever consider that you're going to lose. 
I thought that's a good cut, they're very thin arms, isn't it? It's great. Thin back. To put one of these suits on takes two people about an hour and a half. So what we did is we simplified it, rigged it, just film, magically filming, just do that. Hide it on a couple of clams, tear yourself off it. Yeah, that was the only time I ever felt like I had kind of um, poetic prose. I've still got a lot to learn about the skills of writing, like the prose. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I've still got a lot to learn there. But where it said, you know, they came from Times Square to Tiananmen Square to Trafalgar Square. I like that. There's like T's. <laughs> T's and squares. T's and squares, yeah. <laughs> T squares. Hey, T squares, there you didn't go. mean that. Engine alignment perfect. Communications five by five. We are ready for pre-flight checklist, Commander. Mission Control, this is Hermes Actual. We will proceed on schedule. We have T-minus two minutes, ten seconds to launch by the mark. About two minutes, Watney. How you doing down there? I'm good. I'm anxious to get up to you. Thanks for coming back for me. Well, we're on it. That's really nice. It's lovely, and it, that it, was, that really was nice. Matt Damon's instinct yeah, to really good. save that emotion until the first time he talks to Lewis. Which I yes. thought was so inspired. Copy that, Matt. Capcom, go. This this is interesting here. It's a very nice reaction here. And afterwards, he said, "I don't know what happened." He said, "I just heard those voices and I got really upset." So that was real. It's funny, that no. It's funny how when they're acting, but they're right into it. They're right into the character and the scene. When he and I always like to have playback as much as I can into his earphones. So you're not, you're not on his own, you know? But I, I like that, because it really, it helps enormously. Awesome. Love that CGI. I love a good rocket launch. Yep. <laughs> the light started winking on the take, so I just lost the light. But we just used that shot. I like the one where it's going on and off. And then everything goes to according to plan, of course, and there's no complications, <laughs> as, you know, the audience wouldn't expect anything to go wrong here. <laughs> Velocity 741 meters per second, altitude 1350 meters. That's too low. I, well, it's fighting me. We did the music at Abbey Road, and, and Harry's been mixing down with us in a, on a desk upstairs where he mixes all his tracks together. So I, I think it's going to be pretty wonderful. Booster separation complete. Velocity 850, altitude 1843. He's well below target altitude. How, how far below? Checking. Watney, do you read? There's a nut that wakes him up, being clickety click click. Separation. All this is fairly what will happen. This is all in order. Back to automatic guidance. Shutdown confirmed. As he starts to undo everything and open up the windows and take off the roof, in his speed, he just left the bolts fall to the floor. What he forgets is when you go into orbit, all the bolts are going to lift off, so they're going to click across his helmet and go around him. So although they're in now, they're fantastic. There's about 300 bolts all floating around him. 
slowly bouncing off the sound, but click, click, click. It's, it's cool. Distance of intercept will be... 68 kilometers. 68 kilometers? So the problems just keep occurring. To close the gap, you'll have to use fuel. How much fuel do you need to get us back? I can use about 20% of what we've got. So, okay, burn the, burn the jets. That brings them into 68 kilometers. Then the closing speed is still way too fast, which is, I think, about 40 kilometers. No, it's about... I forget what the time is, but it's, it's too fast to try and catch him. So, they, first of all, they've got to use the jets here to close up the gap. That's easy, but you're using up fuel. Because you're going to need this fuel for docking when you get back to Earth. Because right now they haven't gone into a slowdown, which will cost you fuel. And to get back up to speed, it will cost you fuel. So you're going full ball here. They could be doing 20,000 miles an hour here. But so is he. So it's almost even-even. They're, they're, they're traveling at the same speed. It's, re it's relative. I was once shooting a racing car on a track and I was four, three feet from the nose. We were both doing 140, but it was even like that. I could tap on the body and just get them to back off two inches, the driver. So it's even, even. It sounds ridiculous, but two good drivers, you just trust them. And it, it feels like you're zero. You, you're not, you know. Range, but we've got a problem with intercept velocity. How big a problem? 42 meters a second. This is nuts and bolts bouncing off his helmet. Commander, I have an idea. Go ahead, Mark. Well, if I could find something sharp in here and poke a hole in the glove of my EVA suit, I could use the escape... But you forget about shit like that. He's not going to pick up every bolt. He's just going to go... And somebody said, gee, wouldn't you be worried about it piercing the helmet? I said, no, because it's all traveling the same speed as you. Yes, yes, those are all very good points. So I kept it wide to keep the... Every washer and nut and bolt that was on the floor is now floating. Commander, let's go Iron Man. Here, here it comes. She said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to explode... The, the front of the ship to slow us down. Then, fundamentally, she's saying to the German astronaut, can you make a bomb? Yes, I can make a bomb. But, of course, making a bomb on board a ship is insane. And what she's going to do is evacuate all the atmosphere in all the chambers except the bridge where they are and that will be sealed. The evacuation of all the interior pressure coming from the nose on its trajectory will slow it down. That's the idea. Because in space, the smallest little wispy engine will drive you quickly to where you want to be. That's why she gets the idea from his glove. So if I cut a hole in this glove, I can use the air coming from my suit as an engine to close on the person who's trying to come and save me. Beck, leave your suit on. Meet Johansson at airlock one. One of the uh, 
great unsung heroes of of the Martian is our editor Pietro Scalia, uh-huh. who is so talented, and so much of this final set piece is just Pietro's tour de force. Just good edit, edit. It just oh. just nice tight. <laughs> One of my favorite Pietro stories. Pietro looks like Geppetto, <laughs> very tightly wound Italian man. In one of our um, test screenings, they do these focus groups, and at the end, a uh, person who really liked the movie said, if they said, do you have anything that you would change? And they said, well, you've got all the scenes in the right order. Um, they just need to be edited better, which was totally not true at all. <laughs> but I started laughing in the background, and I say it to Pietro all the time. And uh, he'd be like, I know, because Pietro takes this very seriously. It's like, you don't need to tell me. I know. I'm, I need more time. And I said, Pietro, they, they just mean that the movie's still rough. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> 2001, I went and looked at one afternoon in the Strand in London. It had only been out a week. So I went and saw a 70 mil print in the Strand all by myself. with A packet of cigarettes, because I could smoke in the theater then. And absolutely watched 2001 round twice. I was stunned. And that's when I decided that, ah, I want to do science fiction one day. Because up to that moment, I always thought science fiction was, you know, a bit too romantic, not really worked out, not really real. There, there were some good ones. Goodish. Maybe I still, still. Um, things like that. But never that reality. The reality of it and the logic of it. And the, lo- I think it's the first time a computer was ever really considered at all in film, which threw up details which were fantastic. And Hal was a character. I thought that was just genius. So I, I, I always try to think, if I can, like Stan, but he was fucking clever. And he did not want to go to travel. He would not fly. By the time he did 2001, he would not fly. So to go take the cutting copy of 2000 when he got a ship, went up, up, bought a liner, was cutting it, got a train across the United States and, and delivered it here and showed it to Bob Daly and Co. Because he would not fly. I think he knew too much about flying, was convinced he was going to go down. <laughs> he learned all that in Strange Love, all about the, the, the elements of how a bomber goes into interlock and you can't unlock the brain, once you interlock that brain into what it's going to do, you can't change it. Because the pilot changes his mind on bombing Moscow or whatever, he can't do that. We're going to be off on our angle. What's the intercept distance? Johansson? 260. And they were, I love it the way he thought, because then I think some special department came to him and said, how did you know that? that? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, that's what we do. He said, well, kind of logical, isn't it? So he'd, he'd worked it all out, but it's actually what they do. I always thought that was wonderful. Open C3. Leave it open. Pretty good. She's good. This worked well. Yeah, getting into the suit is not this easy, and they don't have clamps. But we had to do something because she had to get in the suit by herself. So we just worked it out and rigged it. It was pretty, pretty easy. Once these wires are gone, she literally just floats in. All this is fairly seamless. On 2001, they had to invent this process, which still was on wires. We are still on wires today.
the wise one as sophisticated as these. So he'd be very often looking up from below studio floor up to the gantry and be dropping a guy down towards him on wires so he couldn't see the wire because he couldn't take out the wires. So he couldn't photograph him. His stars, because 70mm, were holes in the psychorama. That's why there's only like 12 a shot. I like the decompression, like the, I like that. I like yeah. how that just, you know. <laughs> Boy, the amount of conversations we had to have about the difference between acceleration and deceleration and how yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But boy, a lot of back and forth about that. <laughs> What's the relative velocity? 12 meters per second. Copy. Hook me up. Done. You know, the music is playing a vacuum. You don't overplay it at this point, you save it. Because the vacuum is impressive enough. Now she's gone as far as you can go. On that tether, that's the limit. Like two, three hundred meters is a long way. And he knows he's not going to make it. So he's insisting, I'm going to cut hold my glove. And I'm going to employ the science that you did. And he goes out of control. He's out of control now until he decides to close his hand. Close his hand and has to wait up. What am I going to do? Watney reports. He says, okay, here I come. Bang. That would do it. That's what happened. But you'd spin a little bit out of control. So she's going to go and meet him. So here's a big change yeah. in the book. We debated a lot. And I remember, because most of our process, we would all debate and argue for a long time before I'd even bring it to you, because there was a lot of stuff that would have made you insane <laughs> that I just didn't want to bother you with because I knew that it, it would never come to that point. <laughs> but I remember thinking, okay, you know, th this actually feels right, that we should switch, we should have Lewis go catch Mark at the end. It just felt like the emotional story's right. And I was expecting you to say, no, that's crazy. But your first instinct was, no, no, that's what you should do. Yeah, it, it works. And also because it's Jessica Chastain. Yes. Right. And it also feels like it is the emotional culmination of the story between those two people. Right. Between it's like, Mark and, and Lewis. She feels, even though it's not her fault, she feels responsible for him being stranded. So she's the one who actually rescues him. She's the space captain commander hero. And I think he has that fondness for her as well. So it works both ways. Yeah. And, like, he's, yeah, she's his commander, you know? Yeah. But you're doing all this on wires with green screen. It's laboriously slow. And you think, my God, it's too slow. But then you put it all together. You just got to try and stay with the plan. Then you could end the movie shortly after this, but... I always liked the fact of bringing the Chinese into it, that the deal would be that when they went back in four years, they would take a Chinese astronaut. We saved that for the closing title, which I think kind of works very well. The danger was it would mess up this part, but I don't think so. I think, I think people, what I've seen, the people have enjoyed the film so much 
And I think the more the merrier, the more the better. So in effect, you could say that's it. Right, and that's what they do. They chuck things around, hug each other, leap about, burst into tears. Gotta have the cheering scene. Gotta have the cheering scene. Gotta we have also the add this scene, which in the book you actually say, if this was a movie, we yes. would see us all come aboard. <laughs> and then we actually did it, which made me feel um, like a terrible person. Oh, but, but it, it ties it up right. so well. Yeah. You guys had to do reshoots on this. To he do brought this. everyone back. It. And I had to say, you guys realize Andy put this in the book as though he was making fun of it, <laughs> as though this is what Hollywood would do. And then here we are doing it. Well, you know what? This is a movie, not a book. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so all the actors, they brought them all back in, except Sebastian Stan, who, who they couldn't schedule. The magic so, of editing. Yeah, the magic of editing. I was resisting because I didn't want to do one more wire shoot and save my life. I know, all right then. So we did this. This is what this is the payoff right here. That's it. Yeah, he said, Whoa, he said, Give me a break. I've had a shower for a year. <laughs> when they took his helmet off, he smelled really bad, which is nice. <laughs> ah, yes, the day one. Day you one. want to talk about day one? Not really. Oh, uh, you don't want to talk about day one? <laughs> no, right. I do. I mean, part of it, <laughs> the, the ending was complicated. It's funny because when I first read the book, too, the book went through. At least one different ending. Yes, it had a different, you know. Yeah. In the in the, the version I read, he was back on Earth, and, and swearing at a child. <laughs> and swearing at a child. I tried to get him to swear at a child, but, uh, <laughs> but I think by the I, the new version had not come out when I was done with the first draft of the screenplay, <laughs> and I think I sort of liked it. I, I liked the idea of seeing him back on Earth, so that we started there, and then the other part of it was. I think we just wanted to see what happened to these people. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that instinct. There's so much talk about Ares 5 in the book. Right. Part of me just wanted to see it. It just felt like it's not just about Mark Watney. Let's see all of these people. Right. I really like it. The machine rolls on and yeah. stuff. So the uh, the day one thing I was talking about earlier, dear viewer, for the like, four of you who've listened this far into things, um, is that earlier that day one title came up right as they showed earth right and the heavy heavy implication of that is that this is his first day back on earth correct it's clearly not which is not what it was intended to be right it was intended to be the day one of the next launch right you know it's yeah and so it's cool that they they waited a bit it It was one of those editing things where we tried it a couple of different ways um and i think we landed on the best version of it Mm -hmm. for sure absolutely and that's one you need to know going in because it's going to happen to you. This is space. It does not cooperate. At some point, everything's going to go south on you. Everything's going to go south, and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now, you can either accept that or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math. You solve one problem, then you solve the next one. And then the next, and if you solve enough problems... And I guess there was a completely different version of this on a different set in a different place. With yeah, we tried. One of the problems, I don't even remember why. Yeah. It was more of a, let's try something else, mm-hmm. and we tried something else, and it didn't hey, work. Hey, there you are. <laughs> hey, look, me. Your own personal, private title placard. Hey, and, look, and there's me, yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Here we are, Annie's first press conference. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps her job, that's good. <laughs> 
Well, she didn't screw up. No, she did good. <laughs> Turns out everyone kept their job except Mitch. Except Mitch. Which feels right to me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know you were an EP. Yeah. And here all this time I've been respecting you. I know. Well, that's over. <laughs> this is how we had to tell you. This is how we had to show you. <laughs> There's the Chinese astronaut. There he is. By the way, there yeah, was by real fast. But there he is. Pietro, I love you so much. <laughs> I really love Pietro. He is one of the great editors of our time. Now, when I saw this scene, I thought, oh, couldn't they get him and those actors at the same time? And they had cut. No, that was deliberate. Yeah. He's just he's got kind of a social thing. It, uh, like a lot of us introverts, he yes. just likes to hang back. So there's the disco uh, albums in the background. Man, these mission controllers cheer in the middle of the launch. It's funny. They should really wait. Till Here's the thing. <laughs> we talked about this ad nauseum, and Ridley's point was always, have you actually seen how much they cheer during a lot? They cheer everything all the time. Yeah. And I said, that's crazy, Ridley. <laughs> and he showed me, and I went, oh, okay. You're yeah, right. they really do. They love to cheer. There we are, Beck and Johansson. Happy day. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, now she's promoted to guidance. Benedict is so good. Yeah. I mean, our cast, I cannot believe this cast. <laughs> it's really it's good. It's really good. Disco. And at the risk of sounding like a kiss-ass, Ridley, I love you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this movie is what it is because of Ridley, and I'll kiss a little ass on that too. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. he really, he <laughs> really made this movie transcend. Yep. And this was not an easy movie to make, without question. And there's a reason he is one of the great <laughs> geniuses of cinema. All right. And then perfect ending credit music. By the way, <laughs> you say that in the book, though. There's a part where you say, yeah. "If this was a movie, we'd put this in," or, or is it just? Or, is it's like he had song? He chose. He had to choose a theme That's song. That's what it is. Yep. Uh, yeah, like either "Staying Alive" or uh, "I Will Survive" yep. or "Life on Mars." All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. For those of you who made it through this far. It was delightful to be on this journey with you, dear listener. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, well, this is uh, Andy Weir. This is Drew Goddard. This is The Martian. And Thank you. Signing off. Signing off. You'd be watching a video by now. You've probably seen the film. You'd be watching this on your TV screens. Hopefully you've got a good one to enjoy the quality of the film. I'm very proud of the visual effects in this. I'm very proud of the film and everything about it. It's uh, great fun and it's kind of and it teaches you something about human behavior and uh, never give up. Bye. <laughs>